Hey, everybody. It's comedian and actor Lace Larrabee, and you're listening to Life After the Crown with Tim Tialdo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Life After the Crown podcast, where each episode I bring you interviews with former pageant contestants, title holders, and women of influence who are now succeeding across many different industries in the real world. My name is Tim Tialdo, TV and pageant host, entrepreneur, author, and somebody who just wants to help you become better. Now, if you're wondering what life looks like after pageants, the advice, the stories, and the interviews that you hear on this podcast will not only inspire you, but help make your transition from pageants to professional life a bit easier to handle. So if this is your first time listening, thanks for tuning in. We're glad you're with us. Let's get started. because my mom had a plan she could see the future she was like listen here david one day we're gonna have a daughter named lace and she's gonna find herself broke and childless in her early 30s as a has-been beauty queen bartender (laughs) pursuing her big dream of being a stand-up comedian and in living rooms and barbecue restaurants all over the country in front of tens of people at a time That is the hysterical Lace Larrabee giving one of her stand-up routines on Laugh TV. She is an Atlanta-based actor and nationally touring stand-up comedian. In 2018, she was named Atlanta's Best Local Comedian by the readers of Creative Loafing Magazine. I love the title of that. She created and teaches Atlanta's first and only all-female stand-up comedy class, boasting almost 100 graduates in its first year. She's been seen on Viceland, Fox, The Weather Channel, Epics, and is currently a cast member of Facebook Watch's newest scripted dark comedy called Queen of America, starring Catherine Zeta-Jones. Her pageant experience started at age 13 and continued for 14 years. She held four local titles in the Georgia Miss America organization, resulting in $26,000 worth of scholarship awards. After MAO, Lace continued to compete in the Georgia-USA system, always receiving a finalist spot. Now, although she never held a state title, she is currently seeking anybody who does make counterfeit birth certificates so she can continue to compete for that coveted title that she has been missing. She and her comedian husband love performing together, riding mountain bikes, and recording their newly released podcast called The American Couple. You should definitely check that out. The hilarious Lace Larrabee. Great to have you stop by the podcast today. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my God. Tim, thanks for having me. 14 years. Look out. So I, I got to, before we get into pageants, I got to ask at what age did you realize that, you know, I'm funny and I wanted to tackle a comedy career? Oh, gosh. Well, I always thought I was funny. So <laughs> there's a big gap. <laughs> there's like a one? Big gap between, between me making myself laugh and actually, you know, doing it for a career. So uh, that, that definitely started, I think, when I was a kid. It was, uh, I think, I think I mentioned it in that clip that you played, but my parents had me as teenagers. So we all grew up together. And so times weren't always easy. And uh, our family, our best, our best way to cope with things and to keep each other going and and happy was uh, to make each other laugh. So we would, we would choose to laugh instead of cry for a lot of things. So I just kind of came from a funny family, and then I just kind of ran with that. Any comedian I've ever met usually has one parent that was, you know, super hysterical. Which one was it for you, or was it both? Oh, my gosh. I, I, had, I can 100% say that both of my parents are equally hilarious. They are <laughs> very funny. Now, they have different types of humor, 
but they are both hilarious. And when they get going, it's it's a nightmare. Yeah, I, you have to. <laughs> I'll have to come to Thanksgiving dinner at your house then. Exactly. It's just out funnying one another back and forth. So it really set me up for how to how to react in a green room. That's for sure. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, we'll talk about your comedy career plenty today, but I wanted to jump into your pageant past real quick. So 14 years in pageants, all in the Georgia Mm -hmm. pageant systems for both Miss America and Miss USA, $26,000 in scholarship money. That's great, by the way. So first of all, I want to know, what did you you do with the scholarship money? So I I paid for uh, parts of my college. I I didn't finish paying for college through pageants, unfortunately, which I could have, but a good chunk of, of my uh, tuition. Yeah. So I ended up getting a degree in communication from Kennesaw State University. And that was it. And it just kind of helped me with that. So when you jumped into a major of communications, did you think, you know, mm-hmm. stand up comedy is going to be that communication? Or was there something else on your path that you kind of had envisioned at that time? When I was when I was a kid, I got into acting around like age of nine and uh, got an agent and all that. We were up in the Atlanta area, so it was way easier back then. If you're a cute kid and you've got big teeth and a big mouth, like you were, you know, <laughs> they, an agent wanted you immediately, right? So, uh, and I had a big personality, so that worked out. But then my mom got transferred. She worked for State Farm. She still does, but then she became. Um, she became a State Farm agent. And so they moved her to the next opening, which was in the middle of nowhere down in South Georgia, uh, an hour west of Savannah called Glenville. And we moved down there and no agents anywhere, no opportunities like that. Uh, the only type of acting you could do was if you were in the church Christmas play, right? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so I was desperate for attention and getting on stage and some sort of validation, especially since I had to move to the middle of nowhere and had no friends uh, yet. And so I entered a pageant and I entered a pageant and I won the very first pageant that I was ever in. Uh, and it was just my school pageant, but it, I, I proceeded to get hate mail from all the girls. They would cut up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They would cut up like serial killer style <laughs> letters like from their Delias and filled and stream catalogs and uh so this is what happens in glenville (laughs) yeah exactly no offense (laughs) to glenville today sorry anybody sorry to the one person from glenville who might find this uh podcast but there's only two people down there so chances are at least one will find it uh but so they would leave these (laughs) notes in my locker that said stuff like go back to where you came from yankee and i was like i'm from the same state so uh, it was kind of crazy. They were like, what are you doing here stealing all our you know, crowns from us? But anyway, so that's how I got into pageants. And then over the years after my acting experience and my, my pageant experience, I knew I wanted to be in the performing arts in some form or fashion because in pageants I did, I, I did comedic monologues. That was always my talent. And it, it wasn't stand up, but it was funny. And I knew I loved making people laugh on stage. It was a drug and I loved it. And so when I went to college, uh, I was like, theater, theater, that's it. I didn't know what I want to do. I just knew that that put me on a stage, right? And then a year and a half into college, I was like, well, I'm going to be famous. Why do I need to go to college? And I, I dropped <laughs> and I dropped out for like a year, and then I went back, and then you know how you do. And so the quickest way to graduate was, was a communications degree when I went back. I was like, here's the deal. I love to talk. I don't know what I want to do for a living. I know that it needs to be performance-based but this theater degree is going to take too long to get. And they're like, 
we need you in, in communications. And then that's kind of how I did it. So no, I didn't think that I'd be communicating with people via comedy necessarily. I just knew, you know, communications was just another way for me to open my big mouth. And, uh, that's what I did, and that's, that's what my degree ended up being in. Can we get you to shoot a Saturday morning PSA on the whole, uh, you know, I'm going to be famous, so I don't need to graduate college? <laughs> I think that would be perfect. <laughs> right? I need Yes, people need to hear me, because I especially think today, right, like in, uh, in the way it works with everyone thinks they're going to be a star. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how everyone feels now, and I felt like the only one who felt that way back then. Gosh, well, it wasn't that long ago. Let's see. It feels <laughs> like that, but... Uh, don't tell Hollywood how long ago that was. <laughs> that <way. laughs> so you mentioned at the beginning of pageants, you were just kind of starving for attention and validation. You wanted to compete, but you went on 14 years. I mean, that's, that's a long time to yeah. compete in pageants. What was it that you loved so much about it? Uh, I'm very competitive. So I really enjoyed the aspect of here's a very specific goal, right? There's a clear cut goal and it is to win. You get a crown, you get a title, you get these things. And if you do these things, you get there. And I love the element of uh, it's something different every time. You're not always competing with the same types of people. And, and as cliche as this is, you're competing with yourself. And I love to improve. I love to, to find a thing that I could be better at and then try really hard and then prove to myself that I could do it, right? So you get, especially those preliminary awards, you know, if you're in a pageant and then they do like, Oh, prettiest dress or whatever. If I got that, I was like, yes, I did it. I found the, I put on the prettiest dress to be in this pageant. (laughs) Did you want to run the gamut, get, get all the preliminary awards? All of them. I needed all of them. You got to collect them all. It's like Pokemon, right? You got to get them all. (laughs) So would you, would you still compete today if you could? 100%. I'm not joking about that counterfeit birth certificate stuff. (laughs) If they, first of all, it's even ridiculous that I even have to say that pageant, should be open to older people. And I'm not talking about a Mrs. Pageant. No offense. I think those are great. But I want just a regular, keep it going, like a woman in her 30s that wants to do a pageant and wants to compete with herself again and wants to get up there and and flaunt her talent and not her husband. Like, that's what I want to, well, I guess that's what comedy is. So I guess I figured it out on my own. I just answered my own question, Tim. I did. I'd love to turn on Fox (laughs) and hear the promo, Miss Older USA, tonight at 7. (laughs) <laughs> that would be Miss Ancient, right? Because we age out in our early, in our mid twenties. It's so ridiculous, right? Yeah. So That's you competed crazy, in both systems. Uh, did you prefer yeah, one over the other? I mean, I know winning scholarship money had to be great, but did you prefer one over the other? Well, and, and this is gonna. I, I think they're all great, uh, but I definitely preferred MAO uh, because of the talent portion. Oh, that's say. right. Yeah, because you I wanted to do your about, comedy model. Yeah. What did pageants teach you? I mean, you know, you're competitive. You like to be up in front of people. You like to give comedy monologues. Mm -hmm. Did you really like pull one thing away from it that you you know, say 14 years was worth it for this reason? Oh, 100%. Because especially for someone who is going to pursue the performing arts in any way, right? You have to learn rejection. Rejection is the number one thing you have to face and come back from. And I think that that's what pageants did for me. They made me very resilient because so many people would say to me that weren't involved in pageants at the time that I did them, uh, they would say the same types of things to me that they say when I do comedy now, right? Is Which is, oh, I could never do that. I could never face, you know, people judging me and me being up there and being vulnerable. And that's exactly what I do today. So I don't think that I would have found the success that I found in comedy so quickly. And not, I mean, not that I am wildly successful in any way, please, anybody listening to this, hire me, hire me. Uh, But 
<laughs> but I did, I did get better faster when I started stand up. Um, at, cause I didn't start until I was 28. So it's kind of late in the game for stand up. but I don't think I would have started getting booked on paid gigs so quickly if I wouldn't have had such a grasp of being vulnerable on stage handling it when I didn't do as well as I thought that I was going to do and coming back for more, you know? So that's, that's definitely what pageants taught me. Yeah. So let's, let's juxtapose $10 word of the day, by the way, Uh, being a pageant contestant or competitor versus being a comedian. Now, you know, one of the big things that a lot of girls say, you know, I compete in a pageant because I just wanted to get better confidence. I wanted to get up in front of people in front of, you know, like in a swimsuit, for instance, and just stand in front of a crowd. That's pretty tough. Compare that oh, see, to... I didn't need better confidence. I think I had too much. <laughs> you were one of those. You were like, bring it. Bring it. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So that compare that to standing up in front of a crowd, you know, with a, a new set of, you know, jokes that you've come up with and you have mm-hmm. no idea how they're going to respond. Which one was harder for you? Oh, man. These are good questions, Tim. It's almost Dang. like you you should have your own podcast. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it. You're very good at this. Uh, so let's see. I, ooh, I, well, and they're also at different times in my life too. So I think that is because every, I, I, my theory is every decade, right? You, you learn all new things about yourself. So I guess when I was doing pageants in my teens, that was hard. It was, it was hard. Now I, I joke that I'm like super confident and all that. And I was, and I'm, I'm a ham and, and all that, but it, Still, as a teenage girl, you still have the normal insecurities, right? You still think, uh, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not skinny enough. I'm not, no matter, no matter how many crowns or sashes you have or anything, right? Nothing, nothing can fill that hole that, that, you know, hormones cause in a teenage girl's mind. So, yeah, it, it was hard. It was definitely hard to get up there and lose. Uh, I can put on a brave face and act like it was easy every time, but it's not. And then I guess as an adult woman who's been through a lot and getting up on stage and sharing your thoughts, you still you like those those teenage insecurities are gone. But there's a whole new realm of insecurities, right? Because you know that you've got people older than you in the crowd who could be looking at you and thinking, uh, who does she think she is complaining about her life? She hasn't even been through anything yet she's still 30 you know and and i'm 50 and i've really been through hell and she hasn't so who does she think she is you know so there are there's still judgment and there's still a a level of insecurity that you that you have getting up there but which one's harder Uh, i guess comedy because there's a different outcome every time right like pageants there's a there's enough of a science to it which is here's here's how you win here are the placements that you get. Here's how you prepare. And you kind of get the same thing every time. You can better yourself, but once you've hit a plateau, there's not really much more that you can do, right? You can't get any younger. That's the hardest part. But then, yeah, in comedy, you've got you've to constantly challenge yourself and come up with new things and and society changes and, and people's likes and dislikes change. And you kind of have to go with the flow to stay in the game. So, yeah, I guess, I guess comedy is harder. You just made me, like, really think out a lot of things about my life. <laughs> You've changed completely in the last five minutes. Holy moly. (laughs) I would think the other big thing that's a difference is, you know, obviously in comedy, there's a lot of alcohol involved in the crowd. I mean, I don't do a pageant and I have a rip-roaring drunk audience yelling at me. Um, I'm sure it's a little bit different when you jump into a comedy club and it's like, okay, you know. They could literally say anything at any time. you got to be prepared for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. There is. Now, I have gone to season state pageants since I was out of the system, and I did chug wine in the audience, <laughs> uh, but I did not yell at the girls. Now, did I want to? Yes. 
but I did not. So, so did you I'm sneak it in in your purse, or did you have a trench coat? How did that work? Well, no, you can you can get wine at, at state pageants. Certain ones they serve alcohol in the in the. I guess lobby, I never know because right? I'm always on stage, so I never go out in the lobby ah, to figure out like what people are really having. The, oh man, that's the best part of aging out <laughs> is being old enough to drink in the building. While I'll the tell that to the girls in. the next pageant I go to. You, look, there's an exciting yeah. road ahead because after this, you can buy wine in the lobby at the pageant. That's right. All right, That's so right. Yeah. since we're talking about pageants, uh, you have an acting mm-hmm. career uh, that you landed yeah. uh, a part on Facebook mm-hmm. Watch's new series called Queen America, which is all about pageants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of yeah. course, Catherine Zeta-Jones is the star of that. I know, I've seen some videos with you and her uh, on the show. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you landed that role and just kind of what the whole thing is about. Oh, my gosh. I If, if, if anyone's <laughs> listening and they haven't watched it, it's available on Facebook. So it's, it's, I guess Facebook watch is trying to kind of do their own platform, streaming platform like Netflix and Hulu and all that. And so it's available right now. Like even though the show, the first season has ended, ended a couple weeks ago, uh, you can still watch all 10 episodes. It's really phenomenal. And I think that if you did pageants or you didn't do pageants, I think you'd really enjoy it because they hit on some really hard subjects. So yeah, it's uh, it's a great it's a great show. Thankfully, they filmed it in Georgia. Uh, I have an agent here in Georgia. I'm with the People Store, which I love dearly. They are an incredible agency, very supportive of me. Uh, and so I heard through the grapevine that there was a show about pageants being filmed in Georgia. And so very delicately, I marched myself into my agency and reminded them all about uh, my pageant history (laughs) and said, uh, I swear to God, if I don't get an audition for this show, I'm going to burn this place down. (laughs) So uh, I think (laughs) that usually works. Threats. That usually works, right? You very calmly, very calmly threaten arson. And uh, that's how you get auditions in the business. Uh, no, but I did. I did. I was like, hey, listen, don't forget me, me, me over here. I might be, you know, old and fat now, but I used to do pageants. So, <laughs> so, hit me so up. you obviously got the part. <laughs> right. Well, so I, I did get an audition. And, uh, you know, now most auditions are, you know, you film them now and send them in. So they're not all in person like they used to be. Every now and then you get some in-person ones first, you know, which are really fun. But, so, you know, I recorded it at home and I thought the script was really funny. And the role was for a online pageant talk show host. And I was like, come on, this literally feels like it was written for me. You know, they, so they, this is how they described her. Ready? They said a former beauty queen or sorry. Yeah, I think they said has been maybe. So something like a has-been beauty queen who now that she's out of the system is still obsessed with the system and now has her own talk show in her house that no one asked her to host. So <laughs> that's, that's I you. Like, I was like, ah, this is so me. Uh, even though I'm not as obsessed, you know, I'm not super obsessed with pageants, but I do know a lot more than the average person about them. So, you know, I was like, oh, I can play this up very well. And I had a blast filming it. And when I sent it in, I was like, damn, that was pretty good. Like, I was, rarely do you do something audition-wise that you feel good about, because auditions are generally really weird. Uh, and you're, you're getting them completely out of context, right? So whatever you're reading for the camera is like, you don't know what happened in the scenes before and after. But this one was very clear to me. And uh, yeah, and so I felt good. And I was like, if I don't get a call back for this, right? Like, oh, man. Burn the place down. And uh, I'm going to burn the place down. Well, you're exactly. And, uh, and then I did and I got that call back and went in, had a blast. And the part was actually down to 
me and Beth Keener, who's been on uh, on your podcast. Yeah, of also, course. Good friend. Yeah, who's also my very, very best friend. And, you both are very funny, uh, by the way. She is so insanely funny. And, and I really was like, oh, no. If it sounds between the two of us, this is literally a toss-up because she's hilarious and talented and has way more credits uh, for doing hosting-type work, you know, than I do. And and I don't know. I don't know what that, that last little thing that got me over the edge, but they picked me and she was so happy for me. And uh, and I felt, you know, I was like, if you get this totally, you know, I'm going to be nothing but happy. Um, I will have to burn your house down too, but, you know, I'll wait for you to be out of it when I do. Um, but yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it was, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how, how I edged out and got it, but, uh, I'm so thankful for that. And I had an amazing time on set and we filmed over the summer this past year and, uh, it was incredible. What's, what's it like working with Catherine Zeta-Jones? That's what I was going to say. She's literally an Oscar winner. I've seen Chicago a million times. Like, I love Catherine Zeta-Jones, and I stood there with her. I talked to her in her face, in her beautiful, perfect face. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, she was she was nothing. She was a consummate professional. Let's put it that way. That woman knows what she's doing uh, and does it very well. So it was it was pretty cool to be in her presence and to watch her work. And not just her. There were so many other actors who I'm sure – will be huge, huge, huge names one day that were also on that show and uh, truly enjoyed working around all of them. And it's a mostly female crew, mostly female uh, producers, creator, uh, director. So that was really awesome. That was a really cool, special experience. Very empowering to be around mostly women creators. Truly enjoyed it. So is acting something that you want to kind of continue to try and do? Or was it just because that part was like custom fit for you that you went for it? Oh, no, I still do. I, 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 started acting as a kid and took all those years off, you know, with pageants and all that and uh, got back into it as an adult. And I love it. I mean, I still go out for auditions at least, I don't know, three times a week at least and uh, book little things here and there. But yeah, I love it. I do. Now, I always say that is my secondary goal, though, since comedy kind of takes up most of my my time and brain power. But uh, and in a lot of auditions, I have to turn down just because the film date, you know, fall on days that I'm touring or I already have shows, you know, that I'm committed to or contracted to that I can't get out of. So, you know, it's a uh, it's it's tough to try to balance them, but they definitely go hand in hand, and and one skill helps the other one for sure. So let's talk about what life is like as a comedian. Now, um, I knew one very prominent comedian, somebody that you may remember. I mean, we're going back to the '80s here. Yakov Smirnov. He was a good friend of mine. Oh yeah. Uh, oh really? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I was a news anchor in Springfield. He was down in Branson, and we got to go know each other through some events we met at, and uh, we just became very good friends. But it always sounded to me, you know, from him, like one of those career paths that obviously it's a ton of fun, uh, but the jobs were never guaranteed. Uh, You traveled a ton for little money in the beginning, and that is until and if you hit your big break, and then it can obviously go gangbusters like it did for him from there. You you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, you literally described the the comedy business to a T, which I think it's the same. I mean, I always try to put it when people, you know, are trying to find out how, how does the comedy business work? Like, how do you get gigs? Well, I, I, the way that I explain it to the average person who's not in the business is think of it like musicians. It works the exact same way, right? You do a bunch of gigs. You do as many as often as you can in as many places as you can. You take gigs that you might not necessarily want to do, but you need to do 
for either exposure or money or to practice. And then, you know, if you just stick with it, you keep doing it, you hope to be in the right place at the right time. Um, but you can be one of the most talented people in that in that field and then never make it big. It happens to musicians all the time. It also happens to comics. Some of the funniest comedians that I know, no one knows who they are. But, you know, so it's just all a matter of just it's not just sticking with it. It's sticking with it and networking and being in the right place at the right time. So you're currently, so, you know, we'll, we'll call it, quote, touring. Um, and I want you to explain yeah. what touring is in the comedy world, because I think when we hear touring, you know, we think mostly of, you know, like big bands on the road, Taylor Swift or somebody oh, yeah. like that, you know, what does touring yeah. mean and what is it like on the comedy road? Sure. Well, when I say touring, I like my when I tour, it's it's fancier than Taylor Swift. Uh, <laughs> it's bigger audience. You got your Learjet that you fly Taylor. across the country in? Yeah. See, my my jet flies higher than Taylor's. That's how. <laughs> Um, we, we can go, hers can't go that high. It doesn't have that kind of technology. So mine goes way high and faster, so much faster than hers and way more people know who I am than Taylor Swift, right? Taylor who is what I say usually. Uh, so when I say touring, that just means that I go to other cities and do some shows sometimes. <laughs> but I don't just do comedy in Atlanta. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. Like, Usually comedians, when, I mean, if we can just connect gigs, like, so let's say, for instance, somebody books me in uh, in another state, but it's too far away to kind of make it there and back in the same day or within a two-day period, you want to make it worth it. And so you will, you'll get one gig and then you'll, you'll call some other venues or comics that you know in those cities and say, hey, is there a place that I can get a paid gig here? Where can I set it up? I mean, you're doing all your own work. You're, you're your manager until you're famous, essentially. You are your manager. You're even though I have an agent, they don't they don't book my comedy. That's different because they make a percentage, and I need every dime of what I'm making comedy um, because it's not you know you're not getting there's no there's no union or anything to protect you uh, to make sure you get paid a certain rate for anything. You're just kind of negotiating that on your own, and so you kind of have to do all your own stuff. So if I get gig if I get a gig, I call around and try to get other gigs. Um, or if the comic sees that I'm coming through, they'll go, ooh, will you come do my show as well while you're here? And then you just kind of connect them to make sure that, you know, the trip is worthwhile and the gas and the uh, hotels and all that stuff is paid for on the way. So sometimes you come back with money. Sometimes you're just breaking even. So really good, really well-paying gigs are not the standard. Those are what you just kind of work around, you know, you you hope to get those, but then you have to take a bunch of smaller gigs around those usually. Well, tell me about how you get a gig in comedy, because I'm, I'm taking it, let's just say from the TV hosting business, I'm either going to have an agent sure. get me a job, I'm going to do an audition, I'm going to send in a demo reel, or somebody will have seen right. me doing something else and give me a call. How does it work for you when you call people and say, hey, I'd love to do a gig? What are they asking for from you to be able to say you're credible or not? So I guess it's similar. You have, uh, and see, and then that, that's different too, because in comedy, there's it's it's there's a network right so there's comedians in most major cities well there's comedians in every major city for sure and then there's going to be comedians in a lot of a uh, little bit smaller cities and over time you get to know each other right so whether you, if you you do a comedy festival together you meet people and you're like oh you live in Illinois cool you live in Michigan oh you live here blah 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 you make friends you friend each other online you go back to your homes and then when you know you're going to come through that area or vice versa, they're going to come through your area. You connect with those people that you might've met once three years ago for five minutes. And you say, Hey, I heard you run a show in that town. Remember how I'm funny kind of. And they go, yeah, for sure. (laughs) 
heard you're doing well. I heard you got booked on such and such and such and such. And you've got this credit now and that. And then you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they either already run a show and then they book you as the as the headliner or the closer. And they make sure that you get money before you leave and you sell some merchandise while you're there. So either you do it that way or there's several routes to get gigs, right? So that's one way. Just, you know, people You use your network that you've created through traveling uh, or through people you met who travel through your city. You know, it works both ways. And then there's also smaller agencies that kind of have like a, a not necessarily a monopoly. That's not the, the, the right word, but they have particular venues around an area like the Southeast, for instance. Uh, there's, there's like an agency that has particular venues that run particular shows. And if you get in with them, then they might book you on their stuff. So to, to make sure you stay on their roster, you regularly every month have to send in your avails. And that's just saying, here are the dates over the next two months or months or whatever that I'm available for work. Um, please call me. And then you just constantly remind them, like if you booked another TV gig or whatever, you're like, hey, by the way, I'm also on such and such. And every credit you get makes you a little bit more, I don't know, bookable is the best word to use. So you just kind of, just have to regularly remind people. But yeah, if, if someone's never seen you and someone's recommending you to headline a gig in another state, yeah, you send uh, your best video and your credits in your bio, usually. And if you know people, you go, hey, and I also know your friends, blah, 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 who can vouch for me and they know I'm hilarious. So, well, let me yeah. share a story that I, I heard the other day. I was listening to an interview with Steve Harvey, and I'm not sure if it still works like this. And I'm totally taking this out of context, so forgive me if I get all the facts wrong here. But no, he was good. he was touring in Florida, and he would do clubs for like 50 bucks a show. I mean, you know, you're talking. Sure. He was he was living in his car, and he sure. got a call when he was in Jacksonville one time from the uh, Showtime at the Apollo, the the theater director mm-hmm. there, and he said, "Hey, I've got a one shot gig for you. I'll pay you 500 bucks if you can make it up here to New York." And he figured out mm-hmm. how to get there. And I guess Showtime for the Apollo at the time worked like this, where uh, he's going to get up on stage. And if the audience laughs to a certain level, he earns his next spot the next night. And so what happened sure. is he graduated from $50 a show to eventually he was doing 12 shows a week for $1,000 a show. And then from there, it mm-hmm. just kind of went gangbusters when he got Showtime at the Apollo. Is there certain situations like that where you basically, it's almost like a, a tournament, you know, where you, if you earn your way to the next spot, it gets bigger and better and better? No, absolutely not. That is definitely all part of the not the 80s and 90s comedy boom. So that's kind of how things used to work. I well, would love for things to work <laughs> like that now. Unfortunately, there's a little thing called the internet. I don't know if you've heard about it. I think it's, yeah, I think it's out there. It's, it's, I think it's going to stick. Uh, unfortunately, this thing looks like it's going to stick around. So, yeah, because of the Internet, things are so different than they used to be with comedy, right? All those stories, they're great stories to listen to. But when you're in the business, they're super frustrating because you're like, man, that used to be so much easier. It used to be like if you listen to Ellen DeGeneres' story, who I absolutely adore her. She let her, her newest comedy special is so hilarious. And she waited 15 years to do stand-up again. And I'm so glad she's back at it, by the way. Uh, if anybody wants to, listen, to watch it, it's on Netflix. It's great. Check it out. Uh, I do not work for her, but... Uh, just <laughs> but I hope to. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, I do want to. So, but anyway, her story's so great, but it's like, I came up with this bit. Her, her girlfriend at the time had died tragically in a car accident. And then she literally was sitting at home one night and thought, I'd love to just call God. And ask God why, you know, things happen. And then I thought, maybe I'd ask God why fleas exist and blah, blah. So she wrote her very first bit. She straight up said to herself, 
I'm going to do this bit on The Tonight Show. And I'm going to be the first woman to be called over to the couch from Johnny Carson. And literally within, I think it was within five years of doing stand-up, which that's infant stages in stand-up, by the way. Uh, you, she was on The Tonight Show. She had won Funniest Person in America contest by a fluke. She just, like, beat out somebody at a contest in her local town. Show, I think Showtime. I think it was Showtime was the, the uh, sponsor of it. She beat out one person, went to another level, beat out another person, beat out another person, and then was immediately named Funniest Person in America without touring, without doing comedy for years, without any of that, without any of the hustle, living out of your car, doing doing terrible gigs, all that. Uh, so she got named that, got a spot on The Tonight Show, did that bit, got called over to the couch from Johnny Carson, and then from there, her life completely changed and everything was different. Nowadays, I've got friends, I've got plenty of friends who've done late night TV spots, have done stand up on late night, and the next day they might get like a hundred more followers on Twitter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like honestly, so, that's how it, it's so saturated now. Is what I'm trying to say is like with with the internet and with comedy and with YouTube and Twitter, like there's a million ways for the world to hear what you have to say. And it's not like it used to be where there was a handful of channels, you know, handful of comedians. They make it on there. The, that person's funny. Boom, give them a TV show. You know, like well, there's, there's and, just nothing like that now. And I think the other thing that's changed that uh, Steve Harvey had mentioned in that same interview that I was listening to is, you know, he said, I don't I won't do a, a you know, like what you said with Ellen, like a feature stand up on Netflix or something anymore. He said, because all my jokes that I would write are now offensive to people. You know, we live in this sensitive cupcake culture where everybody's offended by everything. And he's like, I feel like I can't write a joke anymore. He's like, it's really hard to make people laugh and do it the way I used to. Do you do you have challenges with, you know, coming up with material that you feel like isn't going to offend people? No, no. See, I think, that, and, and that's a funny argument that he has because this is so, t- not like Steve Harvey's going to listen to this and then create beef with me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I would give anything to have public beef with Steve Harvey. That would be incredible. <laughs> I'll, see if I can, I'll see if I can make it happen. See if you could set this up. Tag him in this, and I'm about to talk some smack about Steve <laughs> Harvey. Uh, so, no. But to me, from an artist perspective, which I very loosely call comedians artists, uh, we're just, we just make drunk people laugh, right? Uh, but he that's kind of a lazy argument. That's a really lazy argument. Like, Oh, I can't make people laugh the way I used to. Well, times change, you know, times change. There's a lot of things that you can't do anymore that, that people could say it was misogyny was hilarious, you know, 20 years ago, you know, most you could get up there and, and just cut down women and cut down your wife or cut down whoever you want. And the majority of people who were doing comedy were men because the majority of bookers were men. The majority of comedy club owners were men. So men hiring men, doing jokes for men was the thing. Well, then more women get involved, more women come to comedy shows, more women start to book other people, more women get in the business. And then somehow misogyny is not that funny anymore because now, you know, you've got to perform for everybody. So times change, things change, and all it is is just another challenge. And if you call yourself an artist and you want to be funny, then figure out another way to make people laugh. If, If you can't get them with an easy, you know, old school joke, then write a better joke that's more timely that can make smart people laugh. No, that's good. I, I And I appreciate the argument. I'll send it to him right now. So we'll see if we can get, uh, Please. I'll, call, I'll call Dana White at the UFC too and see if we can set something up there. Thank you. Let's, yes, celebrity <laughs> boxing match, me and Steve Harvey. Let's do it. 
So what advice would you have for somebody that wants to get into comedy as a female, maybe as a former pageant mm-hmm. contestant? You know, what, what advice do you have for them? So it's funny. You mentioned that I, uh, that I, that I teach Atlanta's first and only all-female stand-up comedy class, which that was never my intention. Never one of my goals was to be any sort of teacher or anything. But I had a couple women ask me for some help writing some jokes around town. And, uh, and I did. And they said, one particularly encouraged me and said, you really have a knack for this. You're good at, you know, listening and hearing my material and not making it yours, but just kind of helping me punch up what I have. And I was like, oh, Lynn, thank you. What a great compliment. And she's like, you should do this. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll host one class. I'll do one six week course because the only courses in Atlanta were taught by men. And we're mostly men signing up for them. And I was like, you know what? Let me just try this. And it doesn't, you know, any any form of income is great, right? When you're a struggling artist. So I thought, okay, I could probably make a little bit of money, help some women, lift up some voices, you know, encourage people to challenge themselves. And that'll be it. You know, I'll do one. Did one. And then I, next thing you know, I had a waiting list. I'm not kidding. Of like 30 people who want to take another one. Who want to take another one. Who want to take another And it never stopped. And now... I am teaching my eighth class and I'll have 119 graduates in a couple weeks from this, just from starting in like November, 2017. So it's kind of crazy. Apparently I tapped into a vein. So I've been helping women actually start comedy for the past year. But yeah, sorry, you had a follow-up question. What was that? No, Do do you see that growing then? I mean, you know, if it sounds like you tapped into a vein, I mean, are you going to run with it? Well, that's the thing. So I think it it is, and for anyone listening that has been in in any sort of position like that, where you train people in your craft. Uh, I'm going to be completely honest here. It is draining. It is very draining. It takes a lot out of you. It is, uh, it's kind of draining on my creativity. So what I've decided is I'm, I might just start because this thing's not stopping. Like this is a train and it is not stopped. There's no conductor anymore. They jumped off this train. It's just going through everything in front of it, right? Like it's, I have wait, I nonstop have waiting lists and I nonstop check my email every day to some woman being like, no, the next one's sold out. How am I supposed to get in here? And I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I, so I need to pull away personally. So what I've been doing is kind of working with training people who are going to be instructors. And those people are former students of mine who've now been out and about in the comedy world, you know, doing comedy and they're great and they listen well and they know what my, my uh, curriculum is. They understand my vision and all that. So I'm kind of getting women to kind of step in because I have created this little mini school and I want it to keep going, but I don't know if I personally can keep doing it anymore. Also, there's the whole, you know, competitive nature, which after a while I've created too many funny people and I need to stop this. So (laughs) mama's got to eat too, you know, like I also am still trying to get famous. So I'm not ready for anyone else to be uh, more famous than me that I taught. So I'm not ready for that. So well, I, I was going to ask you how people can get a hold of you, but maybe I shouldn't do that because I don't want you no to. No you know, more. Create. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. If anyone's in Atlanta, yeah, look me up, Lace Larrabee. And then I've got my classes called Laugh Lab because I love some alliteration. So Lace Larrabee's Laugh Lab. And I teach it at the world famous Atlanta Punchline in Atlanta. They've been so kind enough to me and my career and then with this class. So I teach it there. It's great. But anyway, yeah, so part of my advice that I give people is – when, you know, don't stop writing, right? Right. Every time something's funny, right, 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 right. And that's what I would, you know, people like who, who were like, oh, my old material wouldn't work now. But you got to write all the time, all the time. You're going to write a bunch of crap, but you're going to have some gems in there. So you just got to keep writing. And any writer knows that. So, so much of stand-up comedy is writing. Keep observing, 
keep going out into the world, watch things, listen to things, pay attention to things and write those things down. And then that's half the battle, you know, and then the other half is working it out on stage. So, you know, if you really, truly want to do stand up comedy, no class is going to make you funny. No class is going to make you famous, but it'll just jumpstart the process, right? It gets you a clear cut first set, like a good, funny set. And then it gets you on stage that first time. But after that, whether you start at open mics or whether you start in a class, you can't stop doing comedy. You can't take off months or years at a time and then hope to get back up and be fresh and new again. You know, you've got to, comedy is a long-term game and you have to commit to it and you have to be okay with being up late at night doing comedy multiple times a week, you know, three, four, five, six, seven times a week, as many times as possible in front of as many audiences as possible, getting as many laughs as possible to get really good. And I mean, that's it. That's those, that's it. Right. And keep doing it. And if you're unfunny and you, and you're not getting laughs and you bomb every single time and that keeps happening for weeks or months, you should quit comedy. <laughs> but if you're getting better as you go, then keep it up. So you tell know. me how long a typical set is and how many jokes that usually includes. Oh, wow. Uh, so the joke, the jokes, the amount of jokes, that's definitely going to vary comic to comic because everybody's style is different. Uh, obviously, I'm quite wordy, and I love to hear myself talk. So I probably don't get, like, I, I don't do one-liners, so it probably takes me a little bit longer to get, like, big punchlines in uh, into a set. So, But other people who might do one-liners, hell, who knows? They could probably get 50, 60 jokes in at one time. So sets range from five minutes to seven minutes. Uh, to, so it's usually five minutes, seven minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 20, 25, and so forth, up into an hour. So when you're, if you close out a show traditionally, like in a club in the weekend, you would, the, the club dictates how much time they need you to do. So you would do anywhere from 45 to an hour. That's a, that's a traditional headliner spot. And then when you are the, uh, the middle, which is the feature, like the, the comic you'll see for a little bit longer than you see the host who goes up right for the headliner, when people go, oh, I opened on the road for so-and-so they're usually doing a 25 to 35 minute spot. Um, and then anyone else, if you're doing open mics or showcase style shows where there's a bunch of comics on at the same time, they're doing anywhere from five, eight or 10 minutes, depending okay. on what the host needs. It just depends on what you're going to see. Are you going to go see a whole bunch of comics that night? Or are you just going to go see that one big comic at the end of the show? Like, you know, so you just got to be ready though. You got to be ready to do whatever they need you to do. Well, I, and I got to say it, it probably helps that in your personal life, you're married to a comedian. Um, I believe his I name know. is Jared. The two of you co-host yeah. a podcast called the American couple. Uh, talk about yeah. the podcast. What's it about? And I, I have no doubt it's funny. Oh yeah. It's definitely funny. It is definitely not safe for work or children. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure. It is. Uh, it's super funny though. We, we just started it. So we're only, I think like eight episodes in, but we interview other couples and see our, our dynamic is interesting because we're very different. He's been doing comedy way longer than me. And uh, we have some different beliefs on some, some key issues, which kind of makes for some, you know, really funny banter. But uh, yeah, we interview other couples and it's just the four of us just kind of shooting the crap, having some drinks, uh, getting, getting real, getting funny about life, relationships, love, uh, careers, conspiracy theories, literally anything. So, <laughs> I, bet, I bet that's entertaining. Oh, it gets funny. It gets weird and it gets funny. Uh, and we're really enjoying doing it. You know, the first few, you kind of, you know, haphazard and a little wild and people talking over each other. But 
we're getting we're getting into a groove now and we've got some really great guests coming up so if anybody is interested go and, and subscribe to it and you know check out the is new it, stuff we have go listen to the old one it's on is iTunes. it a weekly podcast it's supposed to be weekly but <laughs> trying, to, trying to stick to that schedule trying to be weekly it will be weekly eventually but right now it's kind of you know getting our schedules to work because that's tough too because we do it all in person so we've got to get us two and the other couple and our producer all in the same room at the same time uh so that's that's proven to be a little difficult so well, good we luck i have, have no doubt uh, it sounds like yeah that might be a lot of fun and, and certainly could get some traction so good luck with that thank you tim it's fine right. we're enjoying it are you ready for the get to know you rapid fire uh, and I think in this, you know, portion, comedy-style questions for you, ten of them. <laughs> you go as fast as you can. We'll knock it out. Are you ready to go? I am always ready, Tim. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Number one, what's your favorite word to say in Spanish? Ooh, buta colar. Which means? Cuba. <laughs> Very good. Very good. That's it. Number two, who has it easier, men or women? Who has it easier? Men. Men. Oh, why is that? Oh, come on. Y'all can pee anywhere at any time. This is true. And that is so unfair. Yeah. (laughs) Number three, are lifeguards attractive? If they're saving your life, yes. Absolutely. But if they're sitting in a chair or up on a post. And being lazy and telling me that I can't get in the wave pool when the wave pool's not on... Uh, no, not sexy at all. I don't appreciate it. <laughs> Number four, how often is it healthy to cry? Uh, as often as possible, get out those toxins. You gotta cry them out. Don't hold them in. That's what's wrong with a lot of a lot of angry men out there. They're not getting out their toxins through their eyeballs enough. <laughs> Number five, are you politically correct? Mm. <laughs> I could turn that into a very political answer, which is uh, if you vote the way I do, yeah, it is correct. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, I think for the most part, I think I am. I think that I try to. I think you you said rapid, and I don't know what that means. Uh, I can't answer that question rapidly. Uh, I think that yes, for the most part, I try to be politically correct because even as a comic, it's still important to be sensitive to people, but you can still be funny and be respectful at the same time. And I see political correctness more as just being respectful. So we'll go with kind of. Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) All right, number six. Yes. You ready? If the toilet paper roll is really low but not completely out, do you replace it or do you leave it for the next person? Ooh. uh, At home with my husband... I leave it because it's a fun little test to see if he knows how to change the toilet paper. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven. Name a word that starts with the letter Q. Quiet. Good. Number eight. What's something that you could eat for a week straight? Oh, man. Sushi. Sushi, for sure. I could eat that all day, every day for a solid week. Like the sashimi or the rolls? Oh, gosh, either. Well, I'm trying to do this weird diet right now. I bought a Danica Patrick book. It's called Pretty Intense, and she tells me I can't have rice. So if I'm on that crazy diet, uh, then only sashimi. But uh, I could do either. I I could do sashimi with or without the rice. It's delicious. Uh, I might be poisoned afterward uh, from all that mercury, but 
I would enjoy that week for sure. So you take, your new, you take your nutrition advice from an IndyCar driver, is that right? Of course I do. Of course I do. She clearly knows about food and exercise because uh, she's got a book, right? So she must be. She must, she must be. Must be an expert. That's Number good. nine. Yeah. Most embarrassing store you might have been seen shopping at. <laughs> most embarrassing store. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Uh, oh my gosh. God, I don't even know what. That is a great question. Uh, okay, okay. so I would say if you're trying to get some groceries at the gas station, that's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> like what kind of groceries? Like if you're, like, you could have just gone to the actual grocery store, but for dinner you're going to have some kettle chips uh, instead. <laughs> like that. <laughs> Let me stock up on my kettle chips and donut holes uh, because I'm so lazy. <laughs> And I don't want to go to the grocery store. The grocery store is cold. It's very cold sometimes. I I won't go to your grocery store then. All right, number 10. To you, what is the most boring thing ever? Oh, man. I would definitely say, I'm going to offend some people, golf might be the most boring thing that ever existed. Have you ever actually been to a tournament? I was just about to say unless I'm playing then it's very different because I am very drunk on a golf cart and that is fun but watching golf yes I've been to a tournament uh, and I've tried to watch it on TV and holy cow that is the most painstakingly boring thing in the, on the planet to watch yes you don't like the announcing where they're like he lines up he's got an 8 iron from 150 <laughs> yards here he goes <laughs> Oh. Well, if I ever play in a scramble, I think I want you in the foursome because I think you would make it entertaining for us. So I'll definitely yes. give you a call on that. Absolutely. I'm okay. very competitive. If I miss, I'm going to cuss a lot. It's going to be great. <laughs> Have me on your team, folks. Perfect. Well, hey, you're off the hot seat. Congratulations. Oh, my God. Did I make it? I didn't you do did. it rapidly, but I, I made it through. Yeah, that was more the uh, methodical you know, speed round, we'll, we'll call it. But uh, right. that's completely okay. <laughs> Well, hey, I appreciate you sharing your uh, comedy career and your pageant background and just, you know, all the advice and uh, the information about uh, being a comedian. So I really appreciate you. And I, I have no doubt we're going to be catching up with Beth and Lisa and all of our other friends uh, together here in the near future. But uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for ha- Hey, was I your first comedian, former pageant? Or? You actually were. I don't, I mean, I, I can't even name another former pageant comedian that I, I know of. I can't either. Oh. So great! What an awesome experience, and uh, and quite an honor to talk to you. And I really appreciate it, Tim. Thanks. You bet, you bet. Well, we'll chat with you soon. Okay. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and to Lace Larrabee for her time. If you want a good laugh, or you want to learn more about Lace, just go to her website, lacelarrabee.com, and she's got some hilarious videos on there that will definitely get you laughing. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, everybody. And if you wouldn't mind, please subscribe. You can do so on Spotify, iTunes, the podcast app, Google Play, YouTube, or you can just go to lifeafterthecrown.com. And for weekly podcast updates, just follow me on Instagram at Tim Tialdo. Until next time, remember the words of Proverbs 17.22. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Talk to you next week, everybody. Talk to you next week, everybody.